0: Welcome to C-Diff Spores and More with your host, Nancy Kerala. We are here to discuss C-Diff, healthcare-associated infections, and other related healthcare topics. Now, here is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome to C-Diff Spores and More. I'm your host, Nancy Kerala, here to welcome you to the 9th Annual
1: International C-Diff Conference and Health Expo, November 4th and 5th, 2021. Enjoy the episodes.
0: Acurex Pharmaceuticals is developing a new class of antibiotics for infections caused by bacteria listed as priority pathogens by the WHO, CDC, and FDA. These include C. diff and a variety of gram-positive infections and their candidates. To view investor information, see case studies, news, and online media, visit acurexpharma.com. Acurex Pharmaceuticals is the audio sponsor of the 9th Annual International C. Diff Conference and Health Expo. Visit acurxpharma.com, Acurex Pharmaceuticals. We're now going to
2: shift gears and discuss our youngest population, the pediatric population. Uh, I'm so happy to have a panel discussion for this. We have a wonderful group for this discussion, including Dr. Tom Sandora, Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Larry Kosiolik who is an attending physician at the Ann and Robert Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago, and Dr. Mary Beth Nicholson, who is an assistant professor of pediatrics at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. They're going to be discussing the recent developments in diagnosis, treatment, and prevention of C. difficile infection in children. Thank you all so much for being here.
1: Great. Thank you so much. So we will have a little bit of a different format here instead of uh, PowerPoint, slides and, and a presentation, uh, we thought uh, covering pediatric C. diff would be more effective in a, in a round-robin format. Um, traditionally, pediatric C. diff research has lagged behind that in adults. Um, however, the last few years, there's been a lot of developments, including the first um, pediatric-specific guidance included in, in the IDSA and in Shea guidance for C. diff management, uh, the first FDA-approved drug for C. diff, um, ha, uh, was approved over the last several years, and we've had uh, just a, a tremendous amount of work in fecal microbial transplantation uh, in the pediatric population as well. And so uh, I will um, moderate here a, a, a question-and-answer format with Dr. Sandora and Dr. Nicholson, and I also encourage questions from the group that we'll also address during the course of the talk. And so my first question is, is directed to, to Dr. Sandora. Uh, What are the important differences between adults and children in regards to the epidemiology and clinical characteristics of C. diff infection?
3: Thanks so much. I'm very happy to be here for this discussion. Um, I'll mention a few differences between adults and children when it comes to C. diff. Um, The first is that the frequency of infection is lower. So in adults, the incidence of CDI um, is about it's, it's more than 100 cases per 100,000 people. This is based on CDC data from 2011 to 17. In comparison in KIDS, the incidence is about 35 cases per 100,000 people. So it's, you know, a third of the rate. Um, and that's data from 2018 from the Emerging Infections Program surveillance data. Um, another interesting feature in KIDS is that um, the bulk of the disease is community acquired rather than healthcare acquired. So um, of that 35 cases that I mentioned, about 26 of them per 100,000 are from community-associated disease, and only about 9 per 100,000 is from healthcare-associated disease. And that's um, something that's pretty interesting. We could talk about in the Q&A if people want. But C. diff is present in multiple sources. Uh, It's in the water and soil and food. And so um, there's clearly exposure going on outside of healthcare, but that seems to be the most important uh, exposure source for children. Another big difference is that um, severe disease and, and um, severe outcomes are much less common in kids than they are in adults. So things like colectomy or death um, happen much more rarely in children. But they do happen. I've certainly seen kids with C. Diff who have to I'm sure my co-panelists have seen kids with severe disease as well. Um, so it, it's, it's important to still think about this as an important disease for children. Um, we did a study where we showed that among hospitalized kids, if you have C. Diff, Uh, It increases the length of stay by four days, and it increases the cost of hospitalization by just about $2,000. So I think it's still a very important disease for children, um, and one where we should still um, target prevention efforts. One thing that's similar between adults and kids is that um, recurrence frequency is similar. So after a first episode, it's about a 10 to 30% um, chance of having a first recurrence, and that's um, in the same range for kids as it is for adults. So um, maybe I'll ask Dr. Kosielek and to take the next one, which is um, how do infants differ from older children?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, I think that's where C. diff clinical care and research really stands out in the pediatric population is how different infants are uh, related to older children. We, we know that in, in general in medicine that there's certainly differences in susceptibility and presentation and, and risk of certain diseases over the course of the lifespan. Um, but this, the differences between infants and, and older children really is, is fairly dramatic. And so what we've known, and we've known this actually for decades, um, C. diff was actually first identified in, in newborn um, babies uh, in, in the 1930s. Uh, at, and they did a sort of an early microbiome study where they cultured stool from 10 babies every day for the first 10 days of life. Uh, and in four of those babies, they found this this bacteria that was anaerobic. It was difficult to grow um, uh, in the presence of oxygen. And, and that's why they called it Bacillus difficile. It wasn't for another four decades that Dr. John Bartlett identified it as a cause of antibiotic-associated diarrhea. And at which time, it was renamed Clostridium difficile. And it's since been renamed Clostridioides difficile. Uh, and so this, in those babies in the 1930s, they didn't have any symptoms. They weren't sick, but they still found C. diff. Um, now, we know you know, eight decades later now, um, nearly 90 90 years later, uh, that um, babies will be frequently colonized with C. diff strains that can cause disease. And so if we culture stool from babies um, serially over the first year of life, at least half of the infant population will test positive for C. diff uh, bacteria and the types of strains that can actually produce toxin under the right conditions. And in many or most, if not all of these babies, C. diff is actively producing toxin in the guts of of these infants. Despite finding C. diff and finding high high, um, concentrations of toxin, uh, babies in the first year of life are are, uh, essentially never symptomatic because of C. diff disease. They might have a diarrheal illness and also have C. diff in their stool, um, but treating them doesn't make them any better, um, suggesting that there's really no causality there. And so we, we don't really know why infants are... Um, not susceptible to disease despite having this high colonization rate, but there's several hypotheses. Um, one was that, that thought that perhaps mothers are immune to C. diff and, and the toxins and they pass on this immunity to baby through the placenta. Um, the reason this doesn't really make a whole lot of sense is because babies um, seem to be protected against C. diff for at least a year if not longer. And In most cases of infections being um, uh, protected against the infant from mom, that susceptibility wears off usually by about six months of life. Further, that it's a universal finding. All babies, essentially, are, are resistant to the effects, and, and you wouldn't expect 100% of moms to be able to pass on that immunity. Um, our, our group, um, subsequently, we have tested to look for antitoxin antibodies in the cord blood uh, of, of, of um, mothers after following delivery, uh, and uh, while we do find neutralizing antibodies in, in a few of those uh, mothers or infant-mother pairs, uh, it's only a minority, and so that doesn't seem to be the case. The receptor hypothesis is an attractive hypothesis. This is um, suggesting that there's something different about the receptors of the C diff toxin uh, that babies have. Um, I'm sorry that older children have, that babies do not. Um, there's some animal data that that have looked at at uh, infant and adult rabbits and and found that uh, that infant ileal tissue can't bind C diff toxins uh, when when looking at um, some uh, immunohistochemistry on, on pathology. Um, This hasn't yet been proven in humans, but it does make some physiologic sense, although we don't really have a mechanism of why there'd be some sort of developmental expression and and what the trigger would be to start expressing that later in life. Um, More recent data suggested that perhaps bile acids can impact the structure of toxin and then that structure can reduce its ability to bind a receptor. Um, That's a new hypothesis that's being um, investigated and and needs um, further study. Um, But this is important to note because it does impact how we manage babies that have diarrhea and the Infectious Diseases Society of America have said if you're under the age of one, you should not be tested for C. diff, period, because the likelihood of disease is so, so low. Uh, You end up finding it in half the babies and then those babies end up getting uh, antibiotics unnecessarily. Uh, In children between the ages of one and two, it's less clear. Um, it suggested that those um, babies are tested for C. diff if you can't find another cause of their diarrhea they consider treatment if it's positive. There's also impact on clinical research. Um, While, as a pediatrician, we always support clinical research of of therapeutics in babies, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to enroll babies in clinical trials if if they're not susceptible to the disease. There's some ethical questions there, and and several giants in our field, including Dr. Wilcox, who presented earlier, uh, have written about this and and challenged the need to study um, new seeded therapeutics in infants. Um, even though infants don't get disease, they can pass it on to adults, and, and there has been some studies of, of community-associated C. diff in adults that suggest if you have an infant in your home, you're at higher risk of getting C. diff than if you don't have an infant in your home, suggesting that they can pass it on. So it's very important if you, if you are taking care of an infant and you're susceptible to C. diff, in particular, um, good hand hygiene with soap and water following um, changing of diapers is important. So thank you for that question. Uh, I'm going to ask, uh, direct a question now to Dr. Nicholson, Um, what are the challenges in diagnosing C. diff infection in kids, particularly related to the types of uh, tests that's used?
4: Thank you, Larry, and thank you to the organizers for the opportunity to talk on some of these issues relevant to kids. Um, I think we know that diagnostic testing has really been a difficult area, and I think there's going to be some focused lectures on this as well tomorrow that I'm excited for. Um, But in terms of when we think about diagnosis of any condition, we want a really good test that appropriately can diagnose the the condition when it's present and does not diagnose the condition when it's absent. And so we have an extra challenge, though, in terms of C. diff um, with regards to colonization. And so Dr. Kosiolik talked really nicely about how we can see this in infants and how this colonization issue is there and those, those children also don't become symptomatic it becomes a lot more difficult in terms of our diagnostic algorithms in children a little bit later in life who have comorbidities. So we know now that somewhere between 20 to 30% of children with additional comorbidities, whether that be cystic fibrosis or inflammatory bowel disease or um, malignancies are going to be colonized with C. diff at some point during their disease course. And the the, difficulty there lies is that these children are also high risk of developing symptomatic C. diff, and they also have a lot of exposures that cause diarrhea. So we may not care as much when they're colonized and asymptomatic, but what happens when the child with cystic fibrosis gets an antibiotic? Or the one with um, malignancy gets chemotherapy which causes diarrhea, or the IBD child has a flare, is when we test in these patients, we have a lot of difficulty understanding which of those are truly symptomatic from C. diff and warrant therapy versus those that have symptoms from another etiology and are simply colonized with C. difficile. And so that's been one of the really main challenges in recent years is differentiating that. There's been changes in how we diagnose C. diff as well, and I'm going to walk through some of those um, because I think that context is important. So prior to around 2012, 2013, most of our tests were based on the presence of toxin, usually through ELISA-based methods. And these worked um, okay, but they had some limited in terms of their sensitivity, and they also then required patients bring in multiple samples. So in general, a patient would have to bring in three separate stool samples, and if any one of those was positive, we would say they had a C. diff infection. Around 2013, 2014, most centers moved to a PCR-based assays, and they had increased sensitivity and specificity, and required a single sampling. And so centers were eager to move to this type of testing. Uh, Unfortunately, soon after that testing, we noticed that we were detecting significantly higher rates of C. difficile infection. So um, some hospitals reported rates that were normally nearly twofold what they had reported prior to this change in testing. In addition, a really important study was published around 2015 um, that looked at the rates of complications, and they found that if you were only PCR positive but not toxin positive, your risk of having a C. difficile-associated complication was nearly nonexistent. And so this caused some concern, and the IDSA, appropriately in their guidelines, mentioned that there were some difficulties in what was the appropriate best test. And so based on this, they met, they recommended some additional um, two-test algorithms. And so a lot of centers have moved to these. The authors of this IDSA update were really appropriate in, in noting the limitations and that this was preliminary guidance, but recommended that most centers move to two-step testing. And so we decided here at Vanderbilt to see, is that two-step testing really good at differentiating children with colonization versus those with symptomatic disease. And so we enrolled kids that were colonized and asymptomatic, but tested positive for C. diff. And then we had children who had clear kind of symptomatic C. difficile um, disease. And we required them to have an acute onset and diarrhea greater than three bowel movements. So we really had pretty strict criteria. And then we had all of them were PCR positive, And then we applied toxin to their stools to see Are these two step algorithms working, or at least is this one two step algorithm really helpful to differentiate colonization and disease in these children? And what we found is it really wasn't. So we had high rates of toxin production even in these colonized asymptomatic children, um, and they were uh, colonization, they were toxin rates that mimicked those that were symptomatic. And so I think we're still really in an area that we don't have the best diagnostic test. Um, Probably for anyone, but particularly in our pediatric population with comorbidities. And so I would say what I do personally is I really go back to the patient. Those clinical symptoms for me as a pediatric gastroenterologist are really important. Do they have an acute onset diarrhea? Are they on laxatives, which makes their diarrhea more likely from something else? Or are they um, have a risk exposures that make sense for them to develop symptomatic disease? And so I talked about some of the limitations in current testing. Um, but, Dr. Sandora, I'm curious, what's on the horizon in terms of some new diagnostics?
3: Yeah, thanks. So we, um, we've we been interested, because of the challenges that you just described, in thinking about whether there is a different way to approach the diagnosis in kids. And um, this, we've been doing some work led by uh, Dr. Nira Pollock, who's the Associate Director of our Microbiology Lab here at Boston Children's. She and her team developed a novel diagnostic assay that is basically an ultra-sensitive and quantitative way to measure toxin concentration in stool. So it's based on this very interesting technology called Single Molecule Array, or SIMOA, where you can basically efficiently capture and label single proteins on paramagnetic beads, and then you can detect them in uh, these arrays of femtoliter sized wells. So um, it's just so much more sensitive. It's about a thousand-fold more sensitive than conventional ELISA and it allows you to quantify toxins A and B at very low levels of detection. So um, the limit of detection for toxin A is 0.45 picograms per ml, and for toxin B it's 1.5 picograms per ml. So um, she used this assay first in adult patients to see if measuring stool concentration and looking at it could help distinguish between colonization and infection. So adults who were known to carry C. diff, and then either did or did not have diarrhea, and um, found that using that uh, measurement alone was not enough to distinguish colonized individuals from infected individuals. We subsequently did a similar study in young kids zero to three years of age and basically found the same thing, that toxin concentration alone is not enough to distinguish colonization from infection because the ranges of toxin concentrations overlap um, tremendously between those groups. There can be colonized patients who have no diarrhea who have very high concentrations of toxin in their stool. So I think it's pretty clear at this point that just having the toxin concentration alone is not going to be enough to uh, be a better distinguisher. Um, In adults, they also looked at some blood cytokines that are basically evidence of inflammation, so things like GCSF, TNF-alpha, IL-6. And Dr. Pollack found that in adults with CDI compared with colonized adults, the levels of those cytokines in the blood were higher, significantly higher, and suggesting that maybe that could help um, in in terms of thinking of a marker of infection. We tried to look at that in in the same study that I just talked about, but we only had a very small sample size of kids who had blood samples available. But we did actually see a similar pattern for GCSF and TNF-alpha. So the thought right now is, you know, maybe we need some sort of a multi-analyte panel that might include maybe the toxin concentration, but also other markers of inflammation. Um, And maybe that might be the way to help distinguish in people who we know are either NAP positive or toxin positive to distinguish if they have diarrhea, whether it's really from C. diff or whether it's from some other alternative cause. So we certainly don't have an answer to this approach yet, but um, there's definitely an interest in trying to find better ways to to figure out this issue of who's colonized and who has infection because it's such a conundrum, especially in younger kids, but really throughout all ages for CDF. So Dr. Nicholson, I'll ask you um, if you could tell us a little bit about FMT in children. What's the current status and what are some of the short-term and long-term known and unknown side effects of doing FMT in kids?
4: Thanks. So there's, um, I think there's multiple kind of updates in this area. So I'm excited to share some of this with you all today. So, you know, we know we've known for quite some time that the use of SMT can be really effective for the treatment of C difficile, particularly recurrent but also severe in adults. And we've had some case studies and small, and kind of small case series in, in pediatric patients. Um, but we were excited to publish the largest series of uh, pediatric patients. We had over 370. Children who had undergone FMT for a diagnosis of of steel infection. And so we were able to, to demonstrate really good um, effectiveness in that group. So we had an overall success of preventing future recurrences of about 87% and that was published um, just the other year in 2019. So we were excited to see really good um, effectiveness outcomes and we also saw really good safety outcomes. So in that uh, group of over 370 patients, we only had two severe adverse events that were felt to be potentially related to FMT, and those were mainly related to the procedural aspects. Um, But kind of how everything goes in terms of infectious diseases, we know it's an evolving landscape. And so since we published that initial report, there have been some additional safety concerns that I do want to mention. So in 2019, in July of 2019, there was a safety alert that was released by the FDA where um, two patients um, contracted ESBL-producing E. coli, through SMT, their donor was concerned, confirmed to be positive. They were immunocompromised patients, but unfortunately, one of them um, died from the infection. And so, uh, we recognized at that, that time, and the FDA changed their guidance in terms of how we screen our donors. So. increased screening for multi-drug-resistant organisms was recommended at that time, which does change a little bit about how we are able to obtain specimens. It made um, donor-identified specimens more difficult, so most centers at that time moved to some of these donor stool banks. And then just like everything else, I think the COVID-19 pandemic significantly impacted uh, the availability of FMT as well. And so it was pretty quickly determined that um, COVID-2 um, could be identified in um, the stool samples of patients, and at that time, it was recommended that all um, samples be screened for that SARS-CoV-2 virus as well, um, which, again, changed uh, the cost and some of the logistics around FMT. Um, we know that there's really promising microbial therapeutics that are coming, and we're really excited for those. I'm excited to hear more about those. some of those I heard today and, again, I think tomorrow. Um, but the reality is, is that at this time, most of those are not being studied in children. There's no actual current trials of these microbial therapeutics in our pediatric population. And we also had some news earlier this year that Open Biome is going to have, which is the main kind of commercial still bank used in the United States that provides uh, pretty much all of the commercial um, SMT specimens, is only going to be providing um, specimens through the end of this year, maybe a little bit early into next year. So I think. Um, pediatric FMT is going to be in a bit of a void. I don't think we have any products coming and we're going to have a loss of our current products. And so I think um, we're, like you mentioned um, earlier, Dr. Sandor, about the decreased rates of severe disease, but the recurrence is still high and we still see a lot of C. diff and these children have just significant um, changes in their quality of life that we want to make sure we have a safe product. A lot of the microbial therapeutics are um, capsule forms or enema forms, which are also more difficult to Use in pediatric patients, so we really need to study um, options that are gonna be able to successfully treat our patients. In terms of um, short-term outcomes, we have looked at both our IBD patients and our immunocompromised patients as well, and those publications are upcoming. Um, we do see increased rates of severe adverse events in those who are immunocompromised, so we also don't have any deaths um, or prolonged hospital stays, all patients fully recovered. And so I'm hopeful to give more data on that soon. Um, In terms of long-term consequences, I think for C. diff it's really an easy angle. We know that these children have significant dysbiosis associated with recurrent episodes. Their quality of life is severely affected. Um, and so the kind of risk-benefit profile in terms of those long-term consequences seems tipped in their favor. I think when we think about FMT for the use of other chronic conditions where um, we know that dysbiosis is maybe less of a, of a predominant feature, I think there's still um, more that we don't know, and so hopefully we'll have some more long-term outcomes in the upcoming years. Um, so, Tom, I know you're um, kind of an expert in some of this. What's the current standard of care? Um, for treatment of first and recurrent steel infection.
3: Yeah, this is a tricky one. Um, so I was one of three pediatric co-authors of the IDSA Shea guideline. And I can tell you that we debated this at length for so many days and weeks. Um, we we obviously were aware of the adult data which show that metronidazole is inferior to vancomycin for a first episode. It was about 72% clinical resolution versus 81% in the big adult study.
0: Um,
3: and unfortunately, we don't have, we still don't have any prospective head-to-head studies in children comparing miconazole and metronidazole for treatment of CDI. So um, we were in a little bit of a data void in terms of kids and what to do. Um, we also know that there's a long history of people using metronidazole to treat children with mild first episodes of CDI, and those children do well recover. But of course, it, it may be that they would have gotten better anyway if, if they didn't receive anything, so it's hard to know if it was from the metronidazole or not. And um, I was involved in a survey of pediatric ID physicians that was led by Dr. Julia Salmon, which found that essentially every pediatric ID physician in the country who responded to the survey was giving metronidazole for treatment of first episode CDI. So we felt like it was kind of It had become essentially the standard and kids were doing well, so it was hard to completely erase it from the guideline. So we made a decision to recommend that you could use either vancomycin or metronidazole, your choice, for treating a first episode, as long as it wasn't severe. But we did say that if you have a first recurrence, you should consider vancomycin, especially if you used metronidazole for the first episode, so that you'd at least be switching to a drug for which the adult data suggested it would be better. and since publication of that guideline, Larry and his colleagues actually did a retrospective observational study um, looking at about 200 kids who got either metronidazole or vancomycin and found that the kids um, who got vancomycin had a slightly better um, rate of clinical resolution at five days. It was, I think, 86% versus 72%. So that was kind of the first retrospective data that in kids that really um, kind of validated that adult result. And so um, we're going to try to look at that in our prospective study that's going on right now um, to see if we have similar results. And if we do, I think that might help to inform a guideline change where we could really all agree that maybe switching to vancomycin might be the better thing to do for kids too. But I think we we don't really have definitive evidence yet to to say whether that's true. For a a second or subsequent recurrence, the, the most common approach in kids is to use a tapered impulse bakcomycin um, in course, usually over six weeks or longer. And um, there's reasonably good success doing that in children, although certainly there are some children who don't respond to that. Um, at the time we wrote the guidelines, sedactomycin was not yet approved for use in children, so it wasn't included as one of the options. Uh, but it was being studied at that time. And since the guideline was published, it has now been approved, as as Larry mentioned earlier. So I wonder, Larry, if you could talk a little bit about fidaxomycin and its role in treatment for kids and also what other new therapies are either um, being studied or, or might be approaching approval status.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's a great discussion. And I do have to say, if if, if we're ever going to have anyone that has to make guidelines for our field uh, in the absence of data, I'm, I'm glad you and and your colleagues are at the table because you did a great job with, um, you know, the the first shot at a a dedicated pediatric recommendation, and and I look forward to the revision uh, of that in the near future with new data. Uh, And so, you know, fidaxamycin was was the first FDA-approved drug for C. diff and kids. It was was very exciting, Um, and uh, the data derived from the Sunshine Trial, which is a a Phase 3 prospective trial, uh, 140 children were enrolled and and randomized two-to-one to to receive fidaxamycin or vancomycin. Um, With the the frequency of colonization in kids, it's always difficult, particularly when using PCR um, as uh, was discussed prior, to ensure that who are enrolling actually have C. diff infection and not C. diff colonization with another etiology. And so they appropriately excluded kids who had rotavirus and uh, children with inflammatory bowel disease who um, their diarrhea can be multifactorial and very difficult to attribute. They looked at um, uh, confirmed clinical response, which is which is essentially an initial response um, to therapy, um, meaning your diarrhea goes away. And, and there was um, no significant difference. About 78% in those with fredaxomycin compared to 71% in those uh, that got vancomycin um, responded um, to therapy. Um, However, uh, the proportion of children who had a recurrence uh, was significantly lower in the fidaxomycin group, 12% of patients versus 29% of patients in the vancomycin group. Um, That data were analogous to adult data um, that came out several years prior um, that showed, um, not surprisingly, because fidaxomycin is a narrow spectrum drug, um, that um, the um, um, healthy microbiome is less impacted uh and uh for that reason um the this the sustained dysbiosis uh isn't um as much of a concern with phadaxamycin as it is with vancomycin. And so now it is FDA approved. There's a suspension uh, and tablets that are available. Um we we haven't yet figured out how best to use it, um, particularly in a cost-effective fashion in the pediatric population. However, we should be mindful that, you know, the main advantage of fedaxomycin is its narrow spectrum. And so we may not get um, that, you know, the bang for our buck in in kids who, for example, are getting um, incombinant antibiotic therapy, particularly broad-spectrum, high-risk antibiotics like quinolones and cephalosporins, um, you know, the the, the relative benefit might be limited. Um, So future research uh, has yet to look at that. Veblotumab um, is, is, a, is a monoclonal uh, antibody uh, against toxin B that was FDA approved in adults um, and it should reduce the risk of recurrent C. diff infection. There's a phase three trial in kids currently. I'm going and we uh, hope to have data from that soon. Um, there may be uh, a particularly important role uh, for that in, in children who are immunocompromised and may not develop a um, immune response themselves. And so we look forward to those data. Ritonilazol, uh, and just to, for full disclosure, I'm, I am a, a site investigator for the Ritonilazol Phase three trial, um, uh, but that's also a narrow spectrum antibiotic um, that has a novel mechanism by binding to C. diff DNA, and is bactericidal for that reason. Um, in Phase two studies in adults, it was shown to have uh, a, a more frequent rate of sustained clinical response in vacomycin, um, but there's a Phase three trial uh, ongoing um, uh, in uh, adolescent patients um, currently, and so we look forward to data from that. You know, given what Dr. Nicholson had mentioned about FNT and, and the fact that most of the side effects, adverse events are related to the procedure uh, and the limitation and in, in limitations in human derived products and emerging pathogens, I am very excited about some of these microbiome based products um, that are not yet in clinical trials in kids, but I think, think certainly could have a role and, and offer an in in important advantage over um, uh, uh, FMT that uh, requires, you know, sedation and colonoscopy and, and other procedures. Um, So, um, finally, I I think uh, ultimately, in pediatrics, vaccines are our our jam. That's that's sort of what we're known for, right? Preventing disease in kids over the course of the lifespan. Um, Vaccines are in phase three trials uh, in uh, adults, and and ultimately we look forward to identifying, you know, what populations may benefit from clinical trials uh, uh, in the pediatric population for vaccines and and how we can prevent, have, uh, have primary prevention for C. diff in the future. So we're at our time. Um, I don't see any questions in the Q&A, but if any are typed in there, um, I'm happy um, uh, to address them by text. And I just want to thank um, my co-panelists for being here and and going through the the state-of-the-art in pediatric C. diff infection.
2: Thank you, you, all three of you. This was awesome. Um, I learned a ton, and I appreciate just a great pace and everything else. I'm going to ask you 15 seconds each. New diagnosis of C. diff, seven-year-old, what are your treatment options?
1: Tom, you want to start us?
3: Yeah, I, I think I would probably give vancomycin. Okay,
1: the first
2: episode, yeah. Got it.
3: Go yeah,
1: I, I'm I'm moving there, and and um, you know I would describe I would I would talk about the risks and benefits with with the patient, and and um, ultimately I think as an antibiotic that's not absorbed, um, that that's better tolerated in terms of abdominal pain, um, uh, and um, shown to be more effective in terms of resolution. I I think vancomycin really should be first line. Okay. Um, and uh, the 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 main limitations would be cost uh, and and it, that that it's four times a day versus three, and so those are some of the things I would talk to the family about to ensure
2: that there's no issues. Perfect. And Mary Beth,
4: my only difference is that as a GI physician who takes care of a lot of patients with IBD, I like that some of the anti-inflammatory properties that I get with metronidazole in that patient population. But I am I'm hopeful that at some point we can move up in the algorithm. I really like some of these narrow spectrum therapeutics. And I think their potential in terms of preventing additional recurrences is really exciting.
2: Awesome. You know, it's, it's interesting because in the IBD literature in adults, we favor vancomycin um, due to cost, uh, con, you know, constraints with regards to fidaxomicin, which I personally believe is is less of an issue now than it was previously. Well, I want to say this was awesome. Thank you so much, guys. Tremendous crash course. Within 30 minutes, we covered everything. So thank you, thank you, thank you. So we're now going to shift gears, um, and we're going to talk about the microbiota and reducing rates of recurrence. Uh, I want to introduce Dr. Ken Blunt. He is the chief scientific officer at Rebiotics, Inc., a fearing company. Ken will be providing an introduction to microbiota and microbiota restoration for recurrent C. difficile infections. Ken, thank you so much for being here today.
5: Thank you, Paul. Um, One second. I'm going to see if I can get a pointer here on this because it kind of works nicer with the pointer. Um, I don't see it coming out, but that's okay. Let's go ahead. Um, Thank you, Nancy, and thank you, everyone, for joining. Um, Really excited to to share with you. um, Basically, we're going to switch gears and talk more about the science behind the microbiota, why it's important, And why it's relevant for for OCBIP infections. I think I've almost got my laser pointer. Um, So we've talked about the microbiota and the microbiome. Um, Dr. Connor gave us a very nice overview of this, but we all have a microbiome or a microbiota. And what does that mean? We use the word a lot, but it means the microorganisms that live in and on our body. Um, That's skin, that's gastrointestinal, that's urogenital. And the microbiome is a slightly different word, which means the collective genetic signature of all those organisms. Now these are important to a lot of different facets of our health, but as we've talked about today, they can also be, the the microbiome and the microbiota can also be critical to diseases and how we treat diseases and new approaches. Good example is C. diff infections that we're talking about um, during this conference. So I want to get, little sciencey on you here because we often throw around terms and names of bacteria um, and I was recently on spores and more with Nancy and she posed the question well, what are these Firmicutes and Bacteroidetes, and should I be worried if I don't have enough of those and it, it sort of struck me that we don't talk about what those terms mean and how scientists use them we just sort of, kind of jump right to the assumption that We're all on the same page. I wanted to introduce you to how scientists classify um, components of the bacterial microbiome. And that's what we talk most about, and that's what I'll focus on today. So the highest level classification within the bacterial kingdom is what we call phylum. Um, And these are some of the names that you hear very frequently, like BacteriDs and Firmicutes. You may not hear quite as frequently, but other phyla include proteobacteria, echinobacteria, the next level of classification below that, and I would almost liken this to the analogy, of the top level is a classification like, say, a car. And then the next level of classification is, saying a four-door car or a two-door car. Um, that's what we do as we step down the, the levels of the phylogenetic classification. So within the phyla are classes. So, for instance, the bacteroidea are one of the classes within bacteroidetes. Clostridia are one of the classes within Firmicutes, as well as bacilli, and so on and so forth. And this goes on through the order level and the family level, down to the genus and the species level. And now you get into some names that you're more accustomed to seeing thrown around in clinical microbiology, Escherichia coli or E. coli. Think of that like a first and a last name, someone you know, right? Escherichia coli, E. coli, that's a very common name. And you can describe all of the bacteria that way, but know that they're within these broader classifications. Bacteroides uh, ovatus, another good example. So now once we start to define their names, um, then we can think about what they're doing and what is their importance to health or to disease. And that's what I would say is the function um, so, for instance, Bacteroides ovatus, it's a healthy, it's a considered a healthy part of our microbiota within the Bacteroidea class and the Bacteroidetes phylum. And it really contributes to digestion, metabolism, immune function, et cetera. And now, on the converse side, there's bacteria that are very clearly considered a pathogen. Closteroides difficile or C. diff is clearly a pathogen. And then there are some that sort of bridge the gap or are in between. E. coli is a good example of that. E. coli is a a common component in a small proportion of many of our microbiota. Um, But if it gets too too much E. coli or certain types of E. coli, it can then become a pathogen. So it's very important when we start to talk about the identities of these bacteria that we also think about what they're doing and what is their importance to the health or the disease state we're talking about. And then the next question is, well, how do we know what's in a given person's microbiota at a specific time? And what, the way that scientists ask this question is by taking uh, stool samples. Actually, why don't we go back, why don't we just sort of bridge the gap here and and talk a little bit more about one one microbe or bacteria in particular, Clostridioides difficile. Um, This is one that this whole conference is focused on, so I wanted to spend a little bit more time on the biology. Uh, It's what we call a spore-forming pathogen. That means that it can make what is called a spore. It's kind of like a seed. If the going gets rough, spore-forming organisms can form a little seed inside themselves that contains all of its genetic information, but it's really tough to break, and it's very resistant to bad conditions. It's resistant to antibiotics. It's resistant to cleaners. This is why we all talk about... Different ways to to manage spread of seed diff in the hospital because it's tough and it's resistant. Once it finds a better environment, a host, then it can come out of that seed or spore form and grow up to what we call a vegetative form and that's the life cycle I'm showing you here. Spores may be found in the environment they can germinate and grow into the vegetative form. Um, once they're in the vegetative form if they're in a host they can produce a toxin and that's what really leads to the symptoms of C. diff infection. So going back again to how do we determine then if we have a pathogen or if we have an imbalance of all those different bacterial players, the way scientists ask that question is by looking at stool samples. Take a stool sample, extract all of the the DNA that's in the bacteria, and then you break that DNA up into small pieces that are manageable, and you sequence each of those pieces. And that's what gives you this sequence down at the bottom. You compare those sequences to a database, and that database tells you, okay, E. coli has these sequences. If one of my pieces matches that, I must have this many copies of E. coli in the sample. And that's where we get to relative abundance. Um, and that's what's shown here is a microbiome composition expressed as a mean relative abundance in this case. So the way I would read this graph is about a little over 0.4 fraction or 40% of all of the, the bacteria in this sample was bacteroidic class. A little bit more was Clostridia class. And then a much lower percentage or fraction or relative abundance was bacilli or proteobacteria. So that's the way we determine what's in a sample and, therefore, what is the current status of a patient's microbiota. And then we can start to, to, to surmise, once we know those compositions, applying what we know about those bacteria, we can start to ask questions about, well, what is the function and how would that compositional change lead to differences in function? One example of that is bile acid metabolism, and this is an area where the microbiota is really important to our health. So all know our liver produces bile acids, but the types that it produces are primary bile acids, and those are chemically different than secondary bile acids. The only way you get from the primary bile acids that our liver produces to secondary bile acids is by conversion from a healthy microbiota. We don't actually do those conversions with our own enzymes. We're dependent on the bacteria to do that. That's part of the way that they assist our metabolism, but it's also very closely related to other biology that can happen, including pathogens. So, for example, um, the life cycle I showed you for C. diff earlier very closely ties to bile acid metabolism in that primary bile acids actually promote germination and growth of C. diff whereas secondary bile acids inhibit germination and growth of C. diff. So you can imagine that if we could start to understand when a patient has one or the other predominance of primary or secondary, we could get a guess as to whether that environment is conducive or inhibitory to C. diff growth. And then you can extrapolate that to say if a patient was in a situation where their microbiota and therefore their bile acid composition were conducive to C. diff overgrowing, then you would want to restore both the microbiota and the bile acid to a state that really is inhibitory to C. diff. And that's really the case of microbiota restoration, case four microbiota restoration. So now let's go back to C. diff. This is is a review, but I want to just emphasize a couple of points. Very often, C. diff infection first occurs because of a broad spectrum antibiotic that disrupts the microbiota, and as I just showed you, that can then disrupt important metabolism or other functions that promote C. diff to grow. And then if patients are exposed to the spores that I talked about, those spores can move in, they can germinate and grow and produce toxins. And then that patient has primary C. diff. Um, That primary C. diff, of course, is treated standard of care with an antibiotic. That kills the C. diff, but it also does not generally allow regrowth Of that healthy microbiota thereby resetting the correct metabolism to resist C. diff from growing then we have recurrent C. diff because C. diff can just come back and then we get into that cycle of multi-recurrent C. diff and that's really again just to emphasize that's the case for microbiota restoration so let's take it at a very high level again healthy gut microbiota generally high diversity high microbial population dominated by spore-forming and non-spore-forming microbes predominantly in the Clostridia and Bacteroidea classes that I told you about. Some of you have seen this slide, now I've actually told you what does that word class mean, and that's really what it means. One of those classes, Bacteroidia, is a key component of a healthy microbiota. Almost all representatives of a healthy microbiota have 30% or more Bacteroidia. And in a healthy healthy situation, you would see a low abundance of facultative anaerobes like E. coli, like in that gamma proteobacteria class I told you about. And then you would also see the healthier um, balance of of metabolites. The converse is shown on the right side, which is really just the opposite um, of the healthy with all of these attributes that I just described. Our approach at Rebiotics and Fairing was to develop an MRT that was a full consortium. That means it tries to capture as much of a healthy microbiota as possible, a high diversity, a high microbial population per dose. With drug processing, as uh, Dr. Conner referred to, the standardization of process is very important. That's the way we've designed all of our investigational MRTs, is to have a drug processing Uh, a drug manufacturing process that preserves that entire microbiota, including spore forming and non-spore forming, with a consistent bacteria per dose. The reason we felt that was important, on the left side, we show that it's an important part of a healthy microbiota. We have two investigational formulations of MRT that are currently in clinical development. You've already been introduced to those, so I'll go through them quickly. RBX2660 is a liquid suspension of a broad consortium of live sporeforming and non And we've completed five controlled clinical trials, including a pivotal phase three. RBX 7455 is a capsule uh, uh, intended for oral administration. It's lyophilized. It's also a full consortium microbiota. Um, it's a non-frozen formulation, so it doesn't have to be stored in the freezer. And as we saw earlier, um, there was a pos- positive phase one uh, study completed. With RBX 7455. So, this is a summary of all the clinical trials that have been completed for RBX 2660, the liquid suspension. Um, a number of trials, I won't go into detail. Um, Dr. Beth uh, Jeff Mueller will tell you more about these today. One in particular that I'll call your attention to is our phase three pivotal trial. Um, this is punch cd 3 investigational product, again, with RBX2660. In this trial, via novel, innovative phasing approach, we demonstrated that RBX2660 was superior to placebo for reducing recurrent C. Dip infection, with the data shown here. It met a pre-specified threshold of success over placebo. And now, if we look more closely among the patients who, the participants in the trial, who were considered clinical responders, we're going to go back to that relative abundance and ask the question, how has their microbiota changed from before to after treatment? I'll start with the before, and that's shown here as the baseline in each of these four panels. And each panel represents one of the key taxonomic classes of bacteria that I've introduced to you. Bacteroidea and Clostridia generally being the dominant components of a healthy microbiota and gamma proteobacterium bacilli being those facultative anaerobes that you don't want to see at a high composition. What you immediately see from this is that Bacteroidia and Clostridia are decreased at baseline, which is prior to investigational treatment. Um, And that's very different from what you see in the investigational product, RBX2660, which have high relative abundance of Bacteroidia and Clostridia. Similarly, gamma proteobacteria and bacilli are elevated at baseline prior to study treatment, whereas in the investigational product they are low. Um, As soon as seven days after treatment, um, you start to see a shift from those baseline compositions towards the RBX2660 composition, which is representative of a healthy composition. For instance, increases in Bacteria and Clostridia concurrent with decreases in gamma and Bacilli. So in this case, we saw significant shifts from before to after treatment from what we would consider an unhealthy state towards a healthier state. In addition, we looked at the bile acid compositions. I introduced to you earlier that primary bile acids promote C. diff growth um, whereas secondary bile acids inhibit. At baseline, before investigational treatment, predominantly the patients had, the study participants had primary uh, bile acids with a lower abundance of secondary. Again, as soon as one week after uh, investigational treatment, the bile acid composition had shifted predominantly toward secondary bile acids, and that continued out to at least eight weeks in the study. We now have data that we presented at ID week showing up to six months. So we see this consistent restoration of microbiotic compositions from unhealthy toward healthy, as well as metabolite compositions from unhealthy towards healthy. And all of this is simply a model for how we approach both clinical and what we like to call translational, or simply put, the science of how microbiota restoration can occur and can tie directly to the clinical outcomes that we see in our trials. So just to summarize, every person carries an extensive and diverse community of microbiome, of microbes, uh, and now I hope you've taken away from this a little bit more behind the curtain about how we name those and how we classify those microbes and why they're important and what some of their functions are. And that should then lead to the second conclusion here is that the community that's present in a patient or in a person can really affect the biology of a lot of things, but most pointedly for this conference, C. diff infections. What I've also shown you is multiple investigational MRT that are intended to restore a healthier microbiota, in this case to reduce recurrent C. diff infections. And I've also shown you that in multiple clinical trials, that's precisely what we see. The clinical outcome is reduction of recurrent C. diff infections, and then the scientific outcome is a very clear restoration from unhealthy to healthier microbiota and metabolized
2: compositions.
5: So I thank you for your time today. I hope. Hope to engage with you again soon and answer as many questions as you like. Thank
2: you. Ken, wow, thank you so much. You know, what I really enjoyed about your presentation was you took us back to the roots. You took us back to definitions. You took us back to some of the terminology that we might take for granted but others might not understand. Um, and you wove it nicely together with regards to the biosalt milieu, which you know I'm a big fan of, understanding the connection between not just changes in the microbiota, But shifting those changes in the microbiota and what the metabolic effects are, why microbiota restoration therapy, products like RBX2660 seem to be very effective in treating C. difficile infection. So thank you for doing that. I think that you've provided a really nice foundation um, for all of us to learn together.
0: Thank you for tuning in this week for C. diff spores and more. Be sure to join your host, Nancy Kerala, again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, that's 1 p.m. Eastern Time, for another edition of our program on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. None of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together.